0: Welcome to this latest episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series, in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition, regulation and trade practice in London. And I'm joined today by Hubert Sagan, who heads up our corporate team in Paris and regularly advises clients on the application of FDI regulation, and Chris Terry, also a corporate partner in Paris with extensive FDI experience. In today's episode, we'll be looking at what investors need to know about the French FDI regime, which, like many other FDI regimes, has been significantly expanded in recent years and can potentially have a significant impact on deal timetables. Chris, could you start off by giving a brief description of how the French FDI regime works, drawing out the key features that investors need to be aware of?
1: Sure. Thanks, Ruth. Um, So, so I mean, the basic structure of the uh the French FTI regime um, and the basic questions you need to first ask yourself when you want to know if you're going to be falling into it and require prior approval for your operation um, with the Ministry of Economy is first you have to look at the investor and so the investor needs to qualify as a foreign investor um, then you have to look at the transaction itself and for that transaction to fall within the regime which requires a prior approval needs to be either um, and that the acquisition of a controlling stake in a French company, the acquisition of a branch of activity of a French company, or the acquisition of 25 percent of the voting rights in a private uh, Leon company in France, that this last threshold only applies in relation to um, foreign outside of the EU investors. and that threshold goes down to 10% for listed companies. That was a temporary provision, which has now become a permanent one since this year. And then lastly, you have to look at the target and whether the target falls within um, sensitive sectors in, in, under the French regime. Now, obviously, all that looks pretty simple, but there are different fine rules which define, for example, what is a foreign investor? And in practice, you have to look at the chain of control, you have to look at the ultimate uh, beneficial owner of the uh, of the acquirer to make to, to to determine its nationality. For example, a French company which is controlled by another French, another a foreign entity is considered a foreign investor and will therefore need prior authorization before acquiring control in French company inside of censor regime. There are quite detailed rules in all this space. But what you have to remember basically is if you have a foreign investor which is taking a controlling stake or an important stake inside a French company, you need to look and uh, look at that activity, see if it's in the fr- in, in the sensitive sectors before moving on to the transaction.
0: Thanks, Chris. And um, just picking up on that point about the target's activity needing to fall into certain strategic sectors, could you expand a bit more on the sectors or types of activities that are covered by the regime? Um, it sounds like it only applies in certain cases.
1: Yes. But those cases have tend to grow each year. Um, basically, when you're looking at French regime, you have three different buckets of types of activities, which require prior authorization of the um, Ministry of Economy. The first bucket is basically the tr- traditional uh, uh, sector for, for FDI, which is military technology, uh, dual use uh, technology, cryptology, But there's also some other activities within that first sector, like gambling. Um, But those are basically everything that has to do with defense and weapons, um, which is the traditional FTI scope. The second uh, list or bucket is um, what's known as um, infrastructure goods and essential services. And that covers activities like energy supply, water supply, transport, also, space operations, um, sensitive infrastructures, a distribution of of agricultural products. um and so on so a number of different sectors which are considered to possibly pre-create um threats if there's a foreign investor. in this sector, unlike the first one, where either which is much much more black or white, so either you're in or you're out in the second in the second sector it's really a sensitivity test. So it really depends on the market share of the company in question, the substitutability of the service that's being rendered by the company. And so there's a lot of more discretion here um, uh, uh, from the Ministry of Economy to, to, to whether or not the activity of the target will fall within, within or, or outside the FDI regime. And the third bucket, is R&D activities in a number of different uh, technology sectors, uh, in particular, uh, cybersecurity, quantum technologies, artificial intelligence, and biotechnologies, et cetera. So these are more technology-driven, more recent activities, and that list gets longer basically every year. And these activities, if the company, the target company is carrying out these R&D activities, you are also likely to to require uh, FDI um, prior permission. I think maybe what I'd add is it's a long list. There's like 30 strategic sectors and the way that they're drafted, and this is probably something which is common with a lot of FDI regimes is is very wide. So the uh, ministry has quite a lot of of discretion to determine whether or not the activity of the target falls in or outside of the, the regime.
2: Yeah, and, and I think th- this is uh, is drafted very widely on purpose by, by the French administration, so that it gives them quite a bit of leeway to make their own judgment and interpretation depending on in the state-of-the-art technologically, depending on geopolitics, which are uh, apply at, at a given time. Um, and where our job uh, in this field is not necessarily easy is because... There are no um, guidelines as to how to define those sectors, uh, contrary to what you can see in the UK, for example. There is no case law. Uh, there is no base of um, uh, a database of precedents. And so you're basically left with a couple of lines, uh, which were thrown on a, on a piece of paper and, and try to understand uh, the meaning behind it and whether this is sensitive uh, today, because it may not have been sensitive six months ago.
0: Thanks, Hubert. Definitely a point to to watch out for there. And I think that breadth of scope of sectors covered is something that, as you say, we do see um, in other regimes as well, albeit in some cases with a bit more guidance than it sounds like you get in France. Um, but are there any unusual features of the French regime compared with other FDI regimes that are worth highlighting in particular at this stage that perhaps investors might not be aware of or they might not expect?
1: Well, I guess what I'd say first of all is that the French regime is one of the older regimes in Europe, so it's quite mature and it's a lot, evolved quite quite a bit o- over time. So it it, it is. Um, sometimes less binary. There are quite a few different exceptions. So, for example, even if you fall within the regime, there's quite a few exceptions where you can be exempted from it. Uh, for example, intragroup transactions, or when you're acquiring more of a stake in the company. So, there's quite detailed rules for a quite ma- mature regime. The, there's, uh, there is a, a level of professionalism from the uh, from the ministry because it's there. There's quite a lot of practice, um, and as Hibia was saying, it's. It's all, a lot of it is practice a lot of it is not in the law so or in the text. So you, you have to have quite a, a lot of experience in dealing with these type of transactions which require FGI regimes. And one perhaps well, the last thing I'd say on that is the French regime does have a prior um, request regime. So even in, before the transaction is very mature, you're able to go and ask the ministry, does this target activity fall within and out, outside regime? It is, you know, there's quite a lot of debate as to whether that's a useful thing to do when you're going through a transaction, but it is a tool that exists.
0: Thanks, Chris. That's useful to know. Um what about sanctions for non-compliance? So if, for example, a notification is not made when it should have been, or a transaction is completed without having waited for the necessary authorization, what sort of penalties can be applied?
1: Well, this um a large toolkit of penalties that can be applied. Um, without i wanting to go into a lot of detail. The, probably the most important thing to bear in mind is that if you go ahead and do the transaction without requ- uh, obtaining the prior authorization where, when it was required, the transaction will be considered sort of null and void. So you can get an injunction to unwind the transaction and undo what has been done. And that is obviously um, very important to, to know from a deal perspective. Then there are um, a number of, of uh, administrative, monetary, and criminal sanctions, because it is there are criminal sanctions uh, attached going ahead and, and doing a transaction without the prior approval when it's required. Um, monetary sanctions can be pretty important. Um, there are a number of different thresholds. Probably the ones to bear in mind are the fact that that the administrative fines can go up to twice the value of the investment, so can be quite substantial. Um, The other kind of like branch of sanctions that you want to keep in mind is in cases where you have got the authorization, and you've taken out a number of commitments, if you don't comply with them, there are there is another branch of sanctions which can apply, which go to coercive fines. Injunctions, or even the ability of the uh, of the ministry to um, basically appoint a um, specific officer to, to ensure that the that that the obligations are complied with. So I guess the basic idea is there's a large toolkit. It's something that needs to be looked at very seriously.
0: Thanks. And moving on now to how the regime is actually playing out in practice, and what you're seeing when you're advising clients and dealing with the regulator. Can you perhaps comment on the types of transactions that are most likely to attract scrutiny in practice? Are there any trends you can pick out in terms of the type of deals being reviewed? For example, particular sectors or particular types of investor that are subject to greater scrutiny, or perhaps investments associated with particular countries?
1: Yeah. So probably the first thing to bear bear in mind is that this is it's an overtly political re- re- regime, and what I what I mean by that is that the ministry, depending on what's happening in the world, um, the, the geopolitical relationships will take a f- different views on different types of transactions. So maybe going first to to the types of investors, um, obviously certain jurisdictions are more sensitive than others. So if you got an, an investor from uh, a, a Chinese state-owned company, you're going to have a much harder time getting, getting through than if you have, let's say... Uh, EU and uh, private, the private investor. Um, certain times, uh, Chinese investor uh, transactions are 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 basically difficult in, in, in any way to get through. Um, other times, that's less the case. Um, but as these things evolve, for example, right now, um, a Russian investor would be something that would be probably quite difficult to get through. So it really does depend on the context and on the types of sectors. Um, it, it, there is there are some statistics about what types of sectors fall in and what fall 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 out more often. but what you what we see is that as the I was mentioning earlier that um, more recent recent and modern technologies are added on to the to the list, so we're getting more transactions in the in the technology sectors, which are which are now being uh, being scrutinized.
2: And to add on to this, the way the regulator approaches these um, is, is a bit different throughout Europe. And so, for, for example, in most cases that uh, we've worked on with, with Chris, uh, there have been commitments which have been imposed on the investor, whatever the sector. Um, and so what well, we say to our clients is that they should expect commitments to be given uh, to get the approval. When we compare this to, for example, Germany, uh, Germany, the statistics are widely different. In Germany, from what I recall, the, uh, the percentage of approvals which are given with commitments is lower than ten percent. In France, we're high. You know, in most transactions, there are commitments. I think the statistic talk about fifty-four percent. I personally believe it's actually higher because the way they describe statistics, uh, we don't really know what the denominator is. At least in our experience, it's on all of the transactions.
0: That's a really interesting comparative point there, Hubert. Certainly I know in the UK it would be similar to Germany in that we don't see um conditional approvals in in that many cases. So um one to watch out for there with the French regime. You've talked a bit already about the fact that um, there's not much guidance and there's not uh, that much by way of public uh, public decisions. When transactions are called in for review, how transparent do you find the review and decision-making process and the extent to which you can work together with the Ministry of the Economy? Um, or do you find that it's a bit of a black box?
1: So the decisions aren't public. And so basically, uh, when... You- you have to build your own library of decisions, which we, as a firm, do obviously. But decisions that are on transaction you haven't worked on, you're not, you don't have access to them. But in terms of the process itself, you get a case handler, and there's quite a bit of exchanges with the ministry as the case is being looked at. But there, the there's not like a way of. Negotiating is a is 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 a very strong word when we talk when we, when we when we get to talking about uh, about the air exchanges with the uh, with the ministry.
2: To add on on this, it is very difficult when, for example, when you get a negative decision, it's very difficult to actually obtain the rationale of the negative uh, decision for any of the parties involved in the process. Whether it be the buyer, the seller the company, which is the the target, the government doesn't want to share the reasons why uh, it is not granting the approval. So you get some transparency on the due diligence phase, I would say, so, so the first phase is, but when it gets tricky or trickier, then this is where the transparency uh, is, is no longer playing.
0: And without that transparency, um, in terms of the reasoning behind an outcome, Once the review process is complete, if you disagree with the conclusion reached by the minister, so, for example, a transaction is prohibited or conditions are imposed that you don't agree with, is there any scope to appeal against that decision, Um, whether it's a prohibition decision or indeed a conditional approval?
1: You can appeal the decision. You can make an administrative appeal, which basically means you ask the ministry to... um, to reconsider their their decision, and you, afterwards you can go to a contentious appeal with the administrative courts. Um, those are relatively rare because, as we were saying earlier, the ministry has a large degree of of, of discretion. So it's difficult to um, it's difficult to to argue that it's made a bad choice when it's 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 essentially making a discretionary choice um, by the from the administration. There is one case that was in, in 2020, in, in, in where actually before the, um, the Conseil d'Etat, there was a decision which authorized uh, foreign investment, which was granted by the ministry that was brought before the courts. And the court found for the minister, unsurprisingly, saying that there was no manifest or error and that it used its discretion to uh, decide to authorize the the uh, the investment in that case.
0: Thanks, Chris. Turning to the time frame for review now, how long does the review process tend to take under the French FDI regime? And and what impact does that have in practice on the deal timetable?
1: Yeah. So the basic process is there's first phase, which is 30 business days, where you ask for authorization. Well, either you you say you're not, you think you consider you're not inside the scope, uh, if the ministry thinks you're you're considered you're in the scope, and that they need more time to to look at the file, then they'll they can ask uh, they can open a second phase, which is forty five business days. So thirty days then forty five business days. in In practice, anytime that they're going to be uh, negotiating commitments, then you're gonna you're gonna be with the second phase forty five business days. And as Hubert was saying, that is almost all of the files that we've uh, that we've worked on which go into that. So you have, normally we consider that you have a minimum of the 30-day period, the 45-day period. In practice, it takes longer because if there are questions from the ministry that suspends the time periods, and so it actually takes more time than that. We usually consider that even in, in cases where there should not be huge obstacles, that you should account for, for at least three or four months to, to obtain approval.
0: Thanks, Chris. Some really important points there on timing. In terms of remedies, thinking about the other end of the process, um, if national security concerns are identified, what sort of remedies do you see being imposed in France um, to address those concerns?
1: So the um, the way it works is that the, the ministry will ask the investor to sign a commitment letter, and the commitment letter will have a number of commitments and undertakings. The uh, th- Those are tend to, to be more standardized now. And so the type of, of undertakings that you're going to be finding inside of the commitment letters are uh, undertakings which have to do with the maintaining industrial capacities of the target. So making sure that the activities remain as they are in and, and are maintained in France. The maintaining of intellectual property, Ensuring that intellectual property becomes stays registered in France, that it's not take, that it's not taken abroad, that the, the, the key assets and, and, and know-how of the company stay within the company and are are are, are not um, extracted. Um, there are important ones which have to do with data protection and ring fencing of activities and data in France. Typically, also there's going to be information reporting and audit rights from the French um, Ministry of Economy, and you you have to appoint the a connect uh, contact person within the company to ensure that all of the undertakings are continue to be respected. Um, there are more extraordinary ones, which are perhaps perhaps rare, but that can happen and. And those are undertakings like allowing a French um, public entity, like BPI France, to have uh, a stake inside the target and to have governance rights within the company. The types of of uh, of of um, of undertakings will really depend on how sensitive the activity is deemed to be is is deemed to be in France. As you were saying earlier, you have to get used to the idea quite early on in the transaction that you're going to have these type of commitments and bear them in mind when you basically decide to do the deal. Um, so it's important to, to get your client familiar with the types of commitments that are that are going to be asked for and um, and, and, and what can, can be expected. Um, I, I another thing I'd say is that the at, even though there that certain types of commitments like the ones I was mentioning are pretty standardized, there are kind of like more ad hoc type of ones and also the, 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 there's evolutions in practices. And sometimes, for example, like years before, we'd see like certain types of commitments which were time barred. So you'd have a commitment to do certain things which would last for, let's say 10 years. Um, and now certain some of these commitments, they're saying, well, they're evergreen. And it's so it's, as long as you can, 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 can keep the control, you, you have to maintain these conditions in place. So there's the practices also evolve. And these commitments are monitored by the by by the by, by the, the Ministry of Economy. And if they're not complied with, as I mentioned earlier, there's sanctions that can apply. Um, there's also a, an interesting case, which was um, the Ministry of Economy sent sort of an, an open letter, at least a, a warning to uh, to Volkswagen, who had uh, invested in man investments at uh, man and energy services and basically said, Comply with your undertakings. Those are undertakings to maintain in place uh, contracts with the defense ministry in France. Otherwise, I, you know, we'll, we'll, we have uh, sanctions that we can comply that we can put on you. So there's, so, so it was a, a very uh, overt and vocal way of saying we have ways of making you comply with your undertakings. One of
2: the differentiators of the French regime is that. Uh, there is a discussion that takes place on the commitments between the investor and and the state, and the French government. um, And there's a real discussion about the extent of the remedies, why they're imposing these. Uh, It doesn't mean that uh, there will be no remedies, it just means that there can be some tailor-made. And this is quite uh, different from what we have seen, for example, in Italy, where we've been involved in a process very recently, and we have received the commitment letter already signed. Uh, we never saw a draft before, and so and so the the client, this, the investor, discovered basically all the commitments. It had to comply with uh, uh, when the document was already signed. So it, that's a very different uh, way of approaching things. Here, it's a, a bit more, I would say, transactional in their approach.
0: Thanks, Hubert. Some really interesting insights into the practical side of it. Um, just finally, have there been any other recent developments in the French FDI regime which we haven't touched on yet or any topical issues which investors should have on their radar if they're dealing with the French regime?
1: i just maybe close up by saying it's the regime is pretty stable now. We had some guidelines which uh, were helpful in certain respects, though probably more a, a re- repetition of things that practitioners know here in France. Um, what we're seeing is more cases more overt cases where the ministry is more vocal about um, about the positions that it will take, like was typically the case with the uh, with the cough Car- Kofur where the ministry basically said, oh, "I'm going to put my veto if you guys continue discussing." And I, I was talking earlier about the one with uh, Volks- Volkswagen where the ministry sent a warning. so there 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 is a willingness from the f- from the ministry to be, to to be perceived as more active and more vocal inside the space?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a tool that is being used also for uh, public affairs or public comms. We're seeing some speeches from the ministry welcoming Chinese investors, and then six months after closing down uh, on those investments, so so we, we're very much at the mercy of the geopolitical environment, and so this is where I think that area of the law differs quite drastically from antitrust, for example, which, which is more mature, less sovereign type of field.
0: Thanks, Hubert. Um, And thanks to you as well, Chris, for what's been a really interesting discussion today. Um, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. But thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. This week, I've also been talking to Maria Spuva and Christian Jonen about the German FDI regime. And that episode is also now live on our website alongside this one. Looking ahead to next Friday, we'll be hearing from our experts in Spain and also in Italy. We do hope you can join us then.